Are we going to have a funeral for your USB hub? <laughs> I don't think we'll have a funeral. Here lies a USB hub. It served me well. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me my computer peripheral consultant, Persona Malianti. How's it going? I do not specialize in recommending mice or keyboards or other accessories. Just- uh, but, you know, as usual, <laughs> you came in very handy during my my peripheral crisis. The Preston, the Preston peripheral... Put, put, I need something with a P. <laughs> Preston peripheral. Come on. Give me a word. Uh, problem. problem. <laughs> it's going to be one of yeah, those the, days, eh? <laughs> the Preston peripheral problem of 2022. <laughs> uh, I, I got to buy two new USB hubs, man. And no, turning it off and on again didn't fix it. The little, the little power you, outage thing. Surge protectors. Yeah, I don't know why I don't have a search protector. You'd think, you know, as a computer guy, I would yeah. like know that. Well, and it's funny that you bring this up because literally two days ago, I just went and replaced most of the search protectors in my house. Did you know search protectors only have a finite amount of life? And then after um, that, they do nothing? No. Yep. You know what I do and, have on all my outlets? Huh. The, the, not a search protector. Well, the thing is, this is what I'm curious. I got to look into and see if it is a search protector. Although if it did, it didn't do its job. Um, I have the whole house. No, no, no. The, the, the power monitoring yeah. thingy. Yeah. Um, I have one on every outlet that matters uh, so that I can figure out, you know, where all the power is going in my house. Gotcha. But those don't do search protection. You don't think so? Nope. You think and, for all that money, that, you know, because yeah. so, it's one outlet. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing with search protectors. Uh, there's also a notion. So I did a lot of research because that's just the type of person. Of I course, have. you did. Yes. How many YouTube videos did you watch? None. I just read a lot of articles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But but there is something right. Some search protectors have what they call a let-in voltage or a pass-through voltage which is uh-huh. how much it actually allows in before it like clamps down on the surge because that's what a surge protector is supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. You get a spike and it's supposed to clamp down to prevent it. And so some of them have like, normally you want it to be like 400 volts or less, which is still a lot of voltage, which could fry your device, but it's much right. better than letting it all pass through. And so the lower the number, the better it is. And the challenge is a lot of surge protectors after their life is gone, they don't automatically shut down. So they're just kind of letting everything pass through and they're not protecting you at all. That is interesting. But there are some brands. Yeah, there are some brands. So once the protection is gone, it actually shuts off the outlet. Huh. So you know you have to replace it. Because how many people go and look at the green little protected light that's on their surge protector, right? That's hidden in a corner behind, like underneath your desk. Like no one ever does that. And so... You know, this falls under the, I could go and spend a whole lot of money every few years and I don't feel like I should have to. 
Like it, it's bad yeah. enough that I got to buy in the first place, but then if I got to, yeah. and so I didn't know this, I didn't know to even look at the little green light. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, am I losing my, my tech cred? <laughs> Some of them don't, but it's one of the things you should just take a look and yeah, they say two to five years. It also depends on like the power in your area and how clean it is. If you get a lot of spikes, things like that, or if you live in like a area with lots of lightning, I think California it's pretty good for the most part. So we would need to not have some as rain. Big of, to get yeah. So not as big of a concern, but it's just one of those things. Yeah. Periodically you might want to change or if you but have Florida. like a UPS. Yeah. <clears throat> or if you Florida have a UPS, on the other hand, right? Yeah. yeah. Florida on the other hand, lots of lightning and everything else. But yeah. Or if you have a UPS, typically that already has surge protection built in as well. Right. Right. So things to think about. Once again, See, this is why you're my computer peripheral consultant. Doesn't that, that counts as a peripheral, doesn't it? But search protector? I think so. It's plugged into the computer. Yeah. It's a accessory. It's, <laughs> it's on the periphery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Curtis, Curtis. Uh, it's been an interesting week. We did have a minor, and I mean really minor, just random surge a while mm. back. And, um, and my, and my USB hub just stopped delivering data. Like it but does that, But that's else. weird that it power. only stops delivering data. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was immediately that moment because hmm. I was actually using my camera, which is a USB device. And it just, you know, the second it happened, it was like, yeah, no more. but everything else works, right? All the other devices yeah. plugged in. So yeah. you should probably be glad that that $30 hub took a hit rather than you having to go replace like five devices. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I'm trying to figure out, well, I can't, I can't figure out exactly what happened. You know what I mean? From an elect electrical perspective. Yeah. It just, it fried the brains, but it didn't fry. You know what it is? Is it fried the chip? Yep, but it not the power it circuit. The power circuit, yeah. yeah. The power circuit is probably pretty pretty basic. And then, yeah, good times. May you live in interesting times. Are we going to have a funeral for your USB hub? <laughs> I don't think we'll have a funeral. Here lies a USB hub. It served me well. It served me well. Curtis should have brought a surge protector. <laughs> I want to move on. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about slow restores. This is seven ways to have a slow restore. <laughs> Should be really popular as a podcast. Seven ways to have a slow restore. And uh, it's based on this article that I found on Network World. This guy seems to really knows what he's talking about. What do you think? Who Who was it? The author? Uh, it's a, a, a W. W. Curtis Preston. That guy. <laughs> is he a relative of yours? He is related. <laughs> he is related. Uh, I see him on a pretty regular basis. Uh, although sometimes when I'm looking at him, uh, I see he's his dashing. Father. Oh, he's he's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, and um, I like I like the picture that they have on the article. Just some. Random dude looking into some sort of computer innards. <laughs> like he's going to figure out anything by, you know what I mean? Like you yeah. look at that picture. What's that guy going to figure out? 
everything in the world. Yeah. So I, I'd like to start this podcast with a story. Not our um, disclaimer? Oh, yeah, sure. We'll do the disclaimer first. <laughs> Persona and I work for different companies. He works for Zoom. I work for Jeruba. And uh, this is not a uh, this is not a podcast of either company. The opinions that you hear are all personas. And uh, <laughs> be sure to rate our podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash restore. And if you care about this topic and any of the related topics, security, you know, cybersecurity, ransomware, backup recovery, disaster recovery, uh, you know, I don't know. Did I forget a category? Privacy. Barbecue and what's that? Oh, privacy. Yeah, absolutely. If you're, you know, anything that we can, that's in the periphery, it's a big word today is <laughs> that word's going to pop up at least one more the word time of the day. Podcast. Uh, then just reach out to me at WC Preston on Twitter. You can DM me or uh, W Curtis Preston at Gmail. And uh, so, yeah, so I want to, I want to tell a little story and I'm, I'm, if you're a, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you may have heard this story before, but you know, based on the listenership, I don't think anybody out there has listened to all the podcasts except for maybe Daniel Rosehill. Hi, Daniel. (laughs) Um, He's our backup anora. <laughs> Hi, Daniel. Hope the end disc is working out well. He's he's been a guest on the podcast, and uh, you know, big fan of the podcast. Anyway, um, so back in the day when I got my first uh, commercial backup and recovery tool, and and I can actually say what it was because this it's a it's a company that's gone by the wayside. A company's name was Software Moguls. They were headquartered in um, uh, Minnesota. They were a suburb of Minneapolis. And the, the name of the product was SMARC, SM-ARC. Oh, yeah. I think you brought right? this up a couple times. Yeah. 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 W- which is funny because, you know, it should be a SM-BACK, but <laughs> that's a whole other thing. That's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Archive is not backup, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm. In, ca- in case that wasn't obvious to everybody. And if you don't understand the difference, then look at our podcast. We definitely have talked about that topic. Um, or purchase Curtis's book. Or well, yeah. actually, you know what? You don't even have to purchase it now. You can get a, uh, you know, if you if you do it in time, uh, for a limited time only, you can get uh, a free ebook version of my book by going to druva.com slash podcast, and you can get um, a free copy. So. The um, and there is a whole chapter that basically says archive is not back up. <laughs> and wow, I really got off the topic. All right, so they had a feature. This is way before deduplication. This is way before multiplexing. But they had a feature that was inline compression, and this was again before all tape drives had compression. And so they were going to really make my tapes like so much bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I turned on this feature and, you know, I had been running this new commercial backup product for a couple of months, but being the paranoid backup person that I was, I still had the old system running in parallel. Just in case. Yeah. And then we had our first major restore, and I remember, um, I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly, you know, where the server was. And I remember that I had to hop in my car and drive down. 
Um, if there's any listeners in Delaware, I was in, I was on Christiana road in uh, Newark, Delaware. And I drove down the street and I, I remember going in there. And what I did is I put the old backup tapes in my back pocket, but I brought the new fancy backup tapes in my front pocket. And I put the the tape in the drive and I went to go, um, I kicked off the first restore and me being who I was, I created a wild loop that, you know, you know, while true do DF minus K slash directory sleep 60 done. Yep. <laughs> right. And uh, I'm watching this thing and I'm watching and I'm watching, and I'm watching it. It's not changing. The restore is just running. And like, after what I felt was a really long period of time, it finally changed to 1%. Mm. And I'm like, based on, based on, the current rate, this restore is going like to take or two. Yeah. It was going <laughs> to take forever. And, and by the way, it, it was probably two gigabytes. I, I was just going to say, back you know what I mean? It, yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, it was, it was, it was probably less than two gigabytes. Cause I remember our biggest server was Zeus and Zeus was uh six gigabytes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the entire server. So this is one file system. So it, it could have been, you know, it could have been one gigabyte. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, what is going on? And I went over to the tape drive and I'm looking at the tape drive and I'm looking at the little blinky light that indicates that the data is being read or written. And I see blink, blink. Pause. Long <laughs> pause. Long pause. Blink, blink. <laughs> Long pause. And this went on, right? So I'd made a like a nine one one call to software mogas. I'm like, hey man, whiskey tango foxtrot. I'm restoring this primary server. This is the first time I am using my new fancy backup system that we paid all this money for. Uh, I remember that it was sixteen thousand dollars. I remember that. That you know the the whole that was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of servers, but it was a lot of money, right? And, um, this was 19, 1993, mm-hmm. right? 93, 94. And, um, they're like, well, did you by chance turn on the compression feature? <laughs> well, yeah. You're like, of course you're saying that I can save space. Of course I'm going to turn it on. Yeah. So they're like, so here's how the compression feature works during backup, during backup, it, it runs a compress minus C. This is all Unix stuff. Yep. Compress minus C and and redirects the compression, which sends the compression to standard out. Yep. And then and then it redirects it to a temporary file in temp, mm-hmm. right? A file name dot Z. Yep. And then Copies then we copy file name dot Z to uh to the tape during restore. We um we restore file name dot Z to temp. And then we run uncompress in place. And then once it's done, then we copy it from temp <laughs> to mm-hmm. the file system. And so, yeah, basically working as design, dude. Ugh. Like you you did test the restore, right? When you, <laughs> yeah. you should have known, right? And so basically, you know, I was luckily, the story had a happy ending. I had the, I had the other Yeah, you have the thing in the back pocket. I restored it and everything was beautiful. 
you know, and that. And did you get all, rid of that software or that solution? I did not get. I did not get rid of the software. Uh, in fact, uh, we'll we'll bring that full circle. So I did not. I did not get rid of the software. I turned off the feature, mm. right? Um, and uh, continued to use the software for the next couple of years. And then when I left uh, MBNA, which at that time was the second largest credit card company. I left MBNA to go into consulting and they put me in the headquarters of Amico was my first account, which was the American oil company in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't have any decent backups running. Right. And so I was like, man, they need, they need like commercial backup software. And they said, well, we, we had some commercial backup software, but we kind of dumped it because nobody could figure out how to use <laughs> it. I'm like, what did you have? And they go SMARC. <laughs> seriously like the one commercial product out of 50 that i know and you this is literally complete coincidence so it, like when i say that like i ended up being mr backup because due to a series of events beyond my control this is an example of that my first ever client was using the one and only commercial piece of product yeah. that i that i you know that i knew and i was able to call up to smr to, to the company software moguls and i said listen i'm at amico and I'm going to save your ass, right? So mm-hmm. if you can just rework the license so that it'll work in the current environment, because whatever they bought, it doesn't match what they what they have now. And they agreed to do it for me, and so we, we got a license and we got the we got everything backed up. And that's when that's when uh, everything started falling apart. And didn't we have a podcast on why I used to be called Mr. Crash? Yes, we did have an episode. Yeah. Yeah, so that episode <laughs> kicks in after this episode because basically what happened is th- the moment I got a decent backup of the entire data center, the data center just started falling apart. Yeah. Like they, you know, and we ended up restoring like crazy. So I got really, really good at restoring servers. But if you think just, about it, most people probably don't get that experience anymore. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Right? It's kind of like no. you learn trial by fire, right? What you learned yeah. in a matter of, many months is probably more than most people learn over like five years. I have also fought a giant fire as well. An actual fire. Yes. Remember that's a whole yes. other story. That is another story as well. I have lots of less of lessons. <laughs> that's, that's the one advantage of being Curtis. OAF. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, okay. So what we're talking about here is reasons, and this is not one of them, but this is just, just to sort of give you an example of, that the restore speed of a given backup will almost always be slower than the backup speed of that backup. Yep. Okay. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and, and I don't think that this is, especially if, like you said, if you haven't um, done this, you know, I, I use the phrase fired in anger, right? If you've never fired your backups in anger, then you don't know what I'm talking about. Trust me, this is the case for many, many systems. Um, not all, right? It, it's not a universal truth, but it, but but there are many reasons that it can often be the case. So uh, y- you are looking at the article just as I am, right? Yes. The first, talk, talk about the first problem that we have here. Yeah. So the first one is just sort of around if you're using a disk-based subsystem, more than mm-hmm. likely you're going to have RAID, right? Which is right. simple explanation. It's a bunch of disks all 
brought together to make it look like one disc with some level of redundancy within the uh, within those mm-hmm. discs, right? And there are different types of encoding, of course, you use erasure coding versus your normal parity-based RAID. But what happens is when you're writing to a RAID disc or set of discs, right, every time you do a write, there is some amount of additional writes that need to happen because you are keeping additional information with the data. So in case one disk fails, it can always be recalculated and you can get back your data. And this is normally known as parity information. Right, right, right. Calculating parity isn't free, (laughs) right? It's a bunch of checksum operations or other mechanisms in order to be able to calculate that. And then you have to end up writing that data across all of those disks. And so... When you're doing the writes, the performance could have some penalty, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to do all the calculations and send all the writes to the appropriate places. Appropriate places. So so just generally speaking, and by the way, this this generally only applies to like raids two through six. No one uses raid two, so really three through six. No one uses three or four or five anymore. So really what we're talking about is RAID 6. Uh, It doesn't, uh, and why why don't they use RAID? I mean, some people still do, but they really shouldn't. And why not? Which ones? The other ones? Like anything lower than six. Yeah. So in most cases, it basically only handles a single disk failure. So you lose one disk and you can handle that case. But if you lose the second disk. How often do you list? Do you lose multiple disks, though? At the worst possible time, <laughs> right? right? Because yeah. because normally what I've seen happen, right, having worked at past storage vendors, is you are you have a disk fail. Now, if you have a spare, it's going to start rebuilding and repopulating that new disk that just got. And now the problem is when you're in the process of rebuilding that disk, you now have to do reads across all the other disks and put additional load on your system which mm-hmm. could potentially lead to another disk failure, especially if your disks have been bought around the same time or have similar age, right? Or come from similar batches, right? All these sort of issues. And so and if you have one disk fail, it's highly likely that another disk may fail and you're hoping that you can finish your rebuild before the next disk fails. But if you start thinking about like eight, 12 terabyte drives, that might take some time. And so yeah, that's the, that's the real problem. Yeah, that's the real modern problem is that you've got these giant disk drives that take a really long time to rebuild. And so that that risky time in between you've had a disk failure and you, you've you rebuilt that failed disk, that can be a really long time. Yeah. And, and during that time, you could suffer another disk failure and then you'd be, then you'd be SOL. Yeah. And that's why everybody uses RAID 6, or at least they should be. And if you're not, yeah. you should really look into that. But I just want to make a point. This isn't a problem with RAID 10, right? Or RAID 1, which isn't really RAID. <laughs> yep. Right? Uh, well, no, RAID 1 is, RAID RAID one one is, is fine. Mirroring. RAID 0, yeah. yeah. Uh, RAID 1 is mirroring, uh, but RAID generally most people use RAID 10, yeah. uh, which is um, it's mirroring plus striping. Yeah. And, um, and there a- are optimizations that some vendors do trying to minimize the amount of data that gets written out. Like um, you write in full stripes rather than partial writes. You try to aggregate as much data as possible, right? There are optimizations people try to do, right? But in the end, 
there's only so much you could do for having to recompute parity right into checksums and then send yeah. the data out. Exactly. And but but just the general rule is that it is slower to write to a rate array than it is to read from a rate array, a parity based rate array. Yeah. And I would say the same is also true of uh, an erasure coding based array. Yep. Um, so and so that is the first reason why you might have um, um, a, you know, a penalty when writing. And then next we have is this little thing called copy on write snapshots. So I'm a huge fan of snapshots. Um, I, I, I am right. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, ha I have caveats there, you know, they need to be copied in order to be a backup. They're there Having for a good purpose. That, they are, they have a great purpose. Having said that I am less of a fan of the copy on write style of snapshots. Right. And uh, I need to explain what that means. So once you create a snapshot, uh, it creates a moment in time. The, the snapshot, you, you didn't really create anything. You just create a like a, it's like a view into your storage. Right. It, you didn't copy anything. Then when you go to overwrite a block of data with new data, they the, the snapshot system needs to preserve the old block that you had when you created snapshot. So it copies that block out into a snapshot area. And so when you go to read that snapshot, it gets most of the data from the main drive, and then it gets the any before images from that other thing. So that's why it's called copy on write, because when you write, you're going to copy the data. The longer you hold on to a snapshot, the more blocks that have to get copied out, and the more blocks you have to read when you go to, um, to do that. And which is why, um, and, and by the way, this is different than redirect on write, which yep. is um, where you simply write the new block in a new place, right? And it's a series of pointers. It's yep. a lot more complicated. And redirect on write is close to, but not the same as what NetApp does. It's really close. NetApp says it's different and, you know, I'm sure it is, but it's close enough to that. But this is why NetApp and products like NetApp, they can have tons of um, snapshots without it impacting their right performance. But it is a absolute certainty that if you have copy on write snapshots and you keep a lot, you keep them around for a long time um, or you just created a copy on write snapshot and now you go to do a large restore it's going to do a copy of every single block that you're trying to overwrite before it can overwrite it, yeah. which means there's, there's going to be a big penalty when you're going to do that. Um, and, you know, th th this isn't me, you know, I, I remember I never worked for NetApp, but I remember when I was explaining this to somebody and they were like, oh, you're just a NetApp lover. And you're just, I'm like, okay, it's just a fact, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm, I remember being at a large, not Amico, but a, a really large oil and gas company mm -hmm. and a certain other large storage vendor. Yep. yep. One that you might be very familiar with um, came in and, and we just asked them a point blank question. The customer wants to keep six months of user browsable snapshots. What it? would happen to their performance? Yep. And they were like, no one does that. That was the response. No one does that. <laughs> well, we're doing it here with the yep. NetApp systems we already have. What would happen if they, and they literally had to guess. They were, they guessed at like a 50% yep. performance hit was the, was the best guess. So anyway, so 
if you have a copy on write snapshot based storage array, you've created a snapshot and then you go to do a larger store, you're going to have a huge write penalty when you um, overwrite that. Um, So, and then the next, uh, what about this file system bit? Yeah. So the challenge with file systems, right? And this is when it comes to writing into a file system, right? It's no longer the small, like your laptop file system we're talking about but these very, very dense file systems, if you look at some of the scale-out file systems out there with millions and millions of files on it, right? When you're restoring the file, first it creates a file that it wants to restore the data to, and then separately it has to pull the data for the actual data contained within the file system itself, right? And so because there are these two steps, and depending on how many file system or files are in the file system because in the end all of that needs to be tracked in that system and mm-hmm. so creating these files can actually take a t- take quite a while and so if you're pulling all this data and say you have millions and millions of files that could take you much longer than say having one large file versus a million small files yeah, exactly. The, the, it, it could actually, yeah, it could actually take more time to create the files than it does to actually transfer the data. Yeah, most people think it's just, oh, I'm just creating the file. Isn't that simple? But you have to remember when you're restoring file, it's not only creating the file, right? It's also setting appropriate permissions on the file or anything else that needs to be done to the file in addition to moving the data. And, and, so, and it is a really small amount of time. Yeah, but when you have millions of files. <laughs> It's a small amount of time divided or multiplied times millions. Yep. And I, I the, the, and this is why, by the way, there 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 are products that are specifically designed to do it. The only one that's coming to my mind, and I hope I get the product name right because it's been a while. But uh, Net Backup had, maybe still has, a product called Flash Backup. Mm. And what it does is, when you have a scenario like this where you have mil- a very dense file system they can back it up at the block level. Mm-hmm. And then when you need to restore the entire file system, they restore it at the block level. When you restore it at the block level, you don't have this problem, yep. right? We don't have this problem when we restore an entire VM. Yep. I right? was, I was just going to say, yeah, image-based yeah. or app-aware image-based backups is I think the yeah. industry yeah. term. For exactly. That. So, but if you are, if you are restoring at the file system level and you have a very dense file system, it's going to take a while. <laughs> It's going to take longer than 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 otherwise. Um, the next one, it, it's it's a bit odd, but it, it is what it is. It, it, it's a bit it's a bit like it's a bit more out there. But if you you know, and I, I mentioned overburdened transaction logs. So in a transaction log in a database, it's got to keep track of all the transactions, depending on how you do your restore. So if you've got a, the way you do a database restore is you generally have a backup of the database from, let's say 24 hours ago, maybe even longer than that could be 12 or whatever, depends on a number of factors. And then you have a number of transaction logs that you use to move that database forward in time from when the backup was taken up to the point in time of the outage. And if the transaction logs are, um, you know, if, if the storage, if the performance of that is not up to snuff, it can really slow down the playing, replaying of all those transaction logs. And this is something you might not notice during normal operations, 
but the replaying of the transaction logs, it's like you're taking what could be 24 hours of transactions and you're playing them all within, you know, 20 minutes. Right. And so it it could really bog down your, your transaction logs. And if your transaction logs, uh, if the storage is not up to snuff, uh, so what, what does this say? It put your transaction logs on flash. That's all I got to say about that. The other thing I would also say is make sure you understand how long it'll take to replay those logs. Right. So for instance, if you were only doing, you had in your example, 24 hours to do your normal backups, but say the customer decides, oh, I'm only going to do it once a week. Now you have seven days worth of transaction logs to play back. Maybe in the case of a not so heavily used database, that's fine. But if this is like amazon.com, right? And you're trying to play back a week worth of transactions, that's a lot of records to replay against the database. Yeah, and and we're going to cover this again at the end. But basically, I would I would do this, do a test restore, and see how long. You know, if you're if you're doing it once a day, yeah. and then you play a typical days where the transaction logs, and you're like, oh well, that takes one hour. Are we okay with one? You know, a one hour RTO. It, actually, it's going to be more than an hour RTO because it's going to be the the time to restore the database, and then the time to restore yeah. the, the the transaction logs. So then you can adjust perhaps your backup frequency. Yeah. And do it all against or do it for a production backup that you did. Don't do it for like a test instance that you're just trying out, right? Do it for an actual production instance that you can actually test and see see what in real life those transactions look like. And you'll get an understanding of your RTO. Would you recommend doing like our, our friend in Alaska did? Yeah, don't do it in your production environment while you're tearing everything down, right? Paul, we love you, but man, that was a crazy story. Oh, God, that was a crazy story. Uh, what was what was that episode? Oh, I um, It was with Paul Van Dyke. Episode 135, IT admin deletes entire data center, then tests his backups. <laughs> yeah, that would be the one. Uh, so when you say testing it with production data, you don't mean testing your restore by restoring your production data no, 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 on no, top no. of your data. <laughs> you mean using your production backups yes. and restoring it to a, to a test area. That is correct. Key, key differentiator <laughs> there. <laughs> so the, the next thing, and this is, I think, I think this is less of a problem for most people, but for those of you still backing up to tape, this is a real problem. So multiplexing, and again, if you go back to the backup is evil episode from four or five episodes ago, uh, we talked about this. Mm-hmm. We talked about that that multiplexing is evil. It was and still is a necessary evil if you're backing up to a modern tape drive. The reason is that the tape drive wants to go a lot faster than the backup can go. And so you take and you interleave a bunch of different backups together. Which sounds amazing. Which sounds amazing, and it makes the tape drive happy, and it, it it eliminates shoe shining, or at least reduces shoe shining, and everything's great. But the problem is, when you go to restore, you have to read all of those backups and throw away all but the one that you need. And modern multiplexing settings, they're as high as like thirty-two. Yeah. So you're you're throwing away, you know, I don't know what uh, thirty-two divided by a hundred, but. Uh, 97. No, is that what that be? Yeah. 97, what? You're throwing away 97% of the data. Is that really 97% of the data? 
Is, are you are you just really good in your head, or did yeah. you divide that? No, I'm good in my head. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so you're throwing away 97 percent of the data, which means that your restore speed is gonna suck. It's actually ninety six point three seven. Or sorry, eight seven five. Pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good in your head um, thing there. So. Um, and, and that's why, this is why we stopped using tape. This is why I stopped recommending the use of tape as a primary protection mechanism. I'm not even that big of a fan of it as a secondary protection mechanism. Um, you know, this is, you know, we, we talked about this yeah. when an episode with Brian Greenberg uh, and his uh, a colleague where we, you know, there, there is a, there is a, there is a group of people that are bigger fans of tape now because of ransomware. <clears throat> but you got to address this issue and you got to make sure that you understand that when you restore from tape, if you used multiplexing, mm -hmm. then you're basically, if you did not use multiplexing, you don't have this problem. If you did use, I'm sorry, if you did not have multiplexing, then you don't have this problem, but you have a different problem. You, you'll just, full you'll backups. get, well, you won't, you'll have full backups and you have one stream. You'll more than likely be suffering shoe shining from your restore instead of shoe shining during your backups, backups. because you'll get, you'll get the, uh, the raid penalty yep. and the, the right, the right speed, even if you don't get the right, the raid penalty, your disc array probably has a limit at which it can write. Mm -hmm. And it's probably different than the speed at which the tape could, tape drive can go. A lot of people don't realize that tape drives are typically way faster than yep. most, Disc. uh, in terms of throughput, not yep. random access, but throughput. Yep. So you'll so your choice is your choices both suck. Yeah. That's why I don't like using tape anymore for backups. I like using them for archives because they're much better than disk at holding on to data for long periods of time. Um, so so really, what we're talking about here, and that's the end of the reasons. And some of those you can address. You could potentially say, well, because of the restore speed problem, we're going to stop using RAID 6 or we're going to go to RAID 10, right? That's a huge cost because that is a significant difference in the number of disks that you will need. Yep. Although the jump the jump from RAID 6 to 10 is not as bad, bad as the one from yeah. RAID 5 to 10, yeah. right? Um, and by the way, it should be RAID 10, not RAID 0 plus 1. There is a difference between RAID 10 mm -hmm. and RAID 0 plus 1. Uh, there is a difference in the, num the number of drives yeah. that you can lose. <clears throat> or um, or do you think or, some of this goes away also if you're considering like SSD for primary storage? You know, that's a good question. Uh, and the answer is I have no idea. Yeah. Um, SSD is really good at random, you know, yep. it, it's fast at writing. But if the problem is the calculation, then but if you get maybe a, it doesn't help. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe if you get a wide enough know. rate group plus. Yeah. Interesting. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, we're all going to be moving to SSDs. Anyway. Yeah. I, I honestly think that we're going to get to a point where almost everything is either on SSD or tape. tape. Yeah. You do the two right. ends of the spectrum. You decide where your workload runs and you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. all I'm saying here is just be aware of these things now. <laughs> don't don't be like me don't be like what happened right and find out the your your raid penalty when you go to do a large restore and everyone is looking at you yep Fig, figure this out now 
think about the worst case scenario that you have and then go test it. Yeah. Or, think about or the biggest server. I was thinking of when doing your file server restores, don't just pick a single directory with like a hundred files in it, right? Pick something more substantial to restore so you can understand what the real world performance looks like rather than you having to do it in urgent need. <laughs> You need to do test restores and you need to do representative test restores, similar sizes, similar hardware. Um, you know, generally you're going to get slower hardware to test on. Yep. I do think that VMware and virtual, I'll just say virtualization in general makes this a lot easier. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier to restore mm -hmm. an entire VM than back in the day when we did a uh, bare metal recovery of a physical server, yeah. that was a giant pain in the butt. You'll notice for those of you that get the, the new book, Modern Data Protection, I barely mentioned BMR because you, you just shouldn't be doing that at this point, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. You just, everything should be virtualized at this point. It should either be a VM in the cloud or a VM in one of your, you know, pick your favorite hypervisor. The, the advantage is from a backup and recovery perspective alone, um, you know, yep. figure that out or, <laughs> or, or work that out. So th this is all I'm saying is, is, is test it now and then set expectations yep. because it, it, it's just like, it's just like, you know, fights in a marriage. So many times you get over, you get over a fight over something so stupid and it's because one of you just had a different set of expectations than the other. Just make sure that you go in, like that you have a meeting before the bad thing happens and say, listen, I've been doing some test restores. And it turns out that the RAID 5 penalty of our empty squad array means that our restore is going to take roughly 50% more amount of time than the backups. Yeah. Let's talk about that now. And we can either accept that and then don't yell at me when this happens <laughs> <laughs> during production or... Yeah. Um, Let's make a change to the design. And I think another important point is it's not just a one time at the start of a project and you're done because data sets change, requirements change. This is an ongoing basis. You should be doing realistic restores, going back, communicating with your stakeholders, right? Keeping them up to date on what's going on because what might have been agreed upon on day one, right? three months from now when requirements have changed, right? If you don't go back and communicate them, then it set expectations and things may still blow up. And I'd like to suggest, and maybe we should do a whole podcast on this of, of just ways to affect test restores. Yeah. But one thing that I tried was when we procure, when we procured a new server, we, the backup team was given access to that server for a little while before it got production access. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is use that to test full server resource. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with a new box that you bought in, brought in to be a VMware server or yeah. Hyper-V or AHV or whatever. Um, and then just test the crap out of it, test different VMs, you know, make sure that it's in some kind of bubble. Yeah. Right. So that it doesn't start sending out exchange email. <laughs> Speaking of exchange, what's my opinion on on-prem exchange persona? Don't do it. That's right. 
Who the hell is still doing on-prem exchange? You know what? If you're out there and you're listening to this and you're doing on-prem exchange and you're like, why does he keep yelling at me? I want to know what is your deal? What is it that you like about on-prem exchange that you, you know, can I bring up a point? Get? Sure. I think one of them could be data residency related. Do you really think that's a thing? Mm-hmm. Like people wanting the, the, the copy of the, just their data, just in their data center, the, the, not in their data center, but if there are regulations, but you, you can regulations should keep, that you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Yeah. I you know there there are so many industries and so many regulations. Yeah. There could be something, but I am not aware of any. Yeah, I'm not so, particularly yeah. aware, but yeah, that's the only thing that comes to mind is, and most like Microsoft Azure, they are pretty good in terms of where they're located these days. So I could see yeah. that being less of an issue versus like five years ago. But I'm just wondering if there's still some of those customers. I could see there being that like the touchy feely problem. Yeah. Like I just want to touch it with my hot little hands. Yeah. I get that. Although I, I disagree with that. Uh, the, you know, the, the value of physically touching your servers is vastly overrated. Um, and I, I think that you, you, you gain a vast amount of security and whatnot by using SaaS services and by using, um, you know, IS services yeah. where you can just point and click and say, I need this firewall and this set of rules and this set of thing. You just get all that stuff with a point click button yeah. rather than having to piece it all together. Um, you know, I'll take I'll take the security of an average cloud vendor over the yeah. average data center yep. any day of the week. For and sure. that isn't just because I work for Druva. <laughs> I've I've always said that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, well it's been a you know, it's been one of those sad episodes. <clears throat> it's not where we sad. deliver nothing but bad news. It's not sad, it's just things that we think people should be aware of. Right. And because otherwise, well, it's not sad because it would be sad if we didn't tell them this information and then things blew up and escalated. Right. Because like you, right. If they have an issue where they need to do a restore, they had never tested it out. And now they're like, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Don't be, don't, don't be hurt. Like hurt it. (laughs) Yeah. We need the little stick figure. (laughs) Curtis didn't test his restores. Curtis had to use the old backup. Don't be like Curtis. At least yeah. Curtis had an old actually, backup. Yeah, you know, actually, there is in the book there is a stick figure. <laughs> there is one of those stick figures that that talks about Curtis. I forgot exactly. <laughs> I forgot which one it was, but we did one of those yeah. little stick figure memes of "Don't be like Curtis." <laughs> um, so anyway, well, uh, you know, thanks for discussing this article written by this brilliant guy. <laughs> Anytime, Curtis. Yeah, that author was really good. Maybe we should we have, have him on the podcast. On the... <laughs> Great mind say you like. I like that. And uh, thanks to the listeners. Um, you know, we'd be nothing without you. And remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. Mm-hmm.